Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to Episode 7, Becoming Free, Part 3, Stop Making Assumptions. We all make assumptions about what someone else thinks, how they feel, or why they did what they did, right? We all do it. Even those of us who are aware of the detriments of assumption making occasionally fall into it. And this is partly because the brain is wired to make assumptions. Jumping to conclusions is a time saver. The brain also really likes patterns and likes to fill in any gaps with information it already has. And of course, when we you know, really become aware of some unwanted behaviors we have, such as making assumptions or whatever it is we're talking about, that it's also very, very important to kind of take a peek behind the curtain as far as what's going on with the brain. So cognitively speaking, in a very simple way, the brain can be separated into two systems of thinking, system one and system two. And what I'm about to explain is uh, based on the work of Daniel Kahneman. I love this guy. I use his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, in my cognitive psychology class. And he has such an amazing way of explaining how the brain works in a, such a, a, a simple way that it, it makes it makes sense to me. And again, it's sort of really important to get this because once again, like when we're talking about anxiety and later when we get to depression and whatever else, it, it's when we sort of understand what's going on cognitively with neurons, it helps us to you know, also show a little more compassion to ourselves and others. It doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that somebody gets a pass for, you know, saying something unkind, doing something unkind. We're not saying that. We're just saying that it does help us understand a little better and, and maybe show some empathy and compassion because part, part of it, we can't always help. So system one is the part of our thinking that's very automatic, just operates quickly with little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control of our thought process. And system two is the more slowed down thinking. System two allocates attention to the effortful mental activities that demand it, including complex computations. The operations of system two are often associated with a subjective experience of agency, choice, and concentration. Okay, so in plain and simple words, Daniel Kahneman, Kahneman again, is amazing. System one is kind of our knee-jerk, you know, just automatic pilot part of our thinking, whereas system two is our more slowed-down, deliberate thinking. And it comes down to really our reactive thinking versus our responsive thinking. Knee-jerk versus slowing it down, gathering the facts before we actually make a decision. In fact, uh, this concept of the system one and system two thinking of Daniel Kahneman is actually wonderfully illustrated in another book I use called Mastermind by Maria, Maria Konnikova. And it's, they're saying the same thing, only Maria Konnikova, uh, if anybody's any Sherlock Holmes fans out there, she uses the Sherlock Holmes Watson, you know, kind of stories to, to demonstrate how this thought process works.
This that book is so fun because it actually weaves stories of Sherlock Holmes in there. And she talks about her dad being such a Sherlock Holmes Sam with his pipe and just kind of brings it all to life. So basically the main theme of her book is describing these two systems of thought, system one and system two, as they are as they relate to uh, Watson and Holmes. So if you know the story, you know that Watson is very much on automatic pilot and, you know, kind of jumping to conclusions, jumping to this, jumping to that. He's very, it's quick, 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 quick. Whereas Sherlock is obviously all about slowing it down, gathering the facts. And he himself will say it's the difference between seeing and observing. And obviously we are, you know, striving to be in the place of thinking like Sherlock as much as possible. And of course, the more we train the brain to think more like Sherlock, the better all of our relationships will be. And that said, there's certainly a place for our system one more automatic thought. And let's say when, with the example of Holmes and Watson, you know, there are plenty of incidences where Watson, you know, while uh, Sherlock's, you know, busy taking in facts and observing, 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 and Watson kind of, you know, jumps in front of him, pushes him out of the way of a train. Well, this would be a good example of, uh, you know, the value of system one thinking. Or, you know, in real life, you know, grabbing a toddler's hand and pulling them out of, you know, something unsafe. That that knee-jerk reaction certainly has its place. It's just, that's pretty much it. And we want to the you know the high majority of the time sort of land in a place of the more slow down system to Sherlock Holmes thinking though the you know you know pulling a toddler out from the way of a uh, you know moving cars something is obviously the most important job of system 1 a few other examples from common's book are this these detect that one object is more distant than another orient to the source of a sudden sound Complete the phrase, bread and dot, dot, dot. Make a disgust face when showing a horrible picture. Detect hostility in a voice. Answer to two plus two equals. Read words on large billboards. Drive a car on an empty road. Find a strong move in chess, in the parentheses, if you are a chess master. And understand simple sentences. These are some things that System 1 does. And, of course, um, soon we're going to get back to the example of filling a sentence, you know, bread and dot, 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 butter, because we're going to talk about what it means to be primed, which also has to do with, you know, the brain filling in blanks with information it already has. And, you know, after we kind of go through like what's going on uh, with the brain, we will then get into the many ways making assumptions is not good for us most of the time. And you know, I'll also share with you, I was having a, a chat with one of our young adult daughters, and we were first discussing, it's actually her idea to do this whole podcast series, honestly, and we were having this talk about how there's a lot of touchy-feely out there, which is, you know, great. I'm a big fan of touchy-feely, and at the same point, you know, without the without being backed up by the content, I just don't know, you know what it's worth, quite honestly, you know, the I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, is great. Um, 
I'm on a big anti-shame campaign myself. And at the same point, we can really understand what's going on behind the curtain as far as how the brain works. I think it just gives that much more substance to our understanding of what we're trying to learn about. And a really good example of how we can kind of, you know, bridge cognitive psychology with what's going on in our everyday relationships with making assumptions. And there are certainly many examples of this. I'm thinking of one right on our, our textbook, actually, which is currently locked in my office. So this will be paraphrasing Goldstein's textbook, the, the famous McKay bank experiment. So he had uh, two groups of people and he had them, he was talking, you know, kind of very general statements about a bank to their uh, attending ear. Let's just say it's the right ear for the sake of it. The attending ear, blah, 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 the bank, blah, 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 the bank, two groups of people. In the left ear, the unattending ear, he whispered biased words. So to one group, he might have words like uh, money, loans, things like that. And to the other group in the unattending ear, he said biased words such as frogs, mud, water. When the participants were then asked questions about the bank, the two groups, of course, the ones uh, who were fed words like, you know, money and loans sort of envisioned their bank as being a financial institution. Whereas the other group who were primed with words like frogs, mud, water, envision the bank to be a river bank. And, you know, this experiment obviously, you know, demonstrates lots because the context, you know, with which we are primed matters a whole lot with how we then respond. First of all, what we picture and then what we respond with. And of course, we're primed. um, Priming is something that's unconscious. So we're unaware of why we're pulled towards something or why we're responding in a certain way. And probably one of the most common examples of this, which we're all aware of, is marketing and advertising. We're primed all the time. You know, just say when, um, after the Olympics, when um, Olympians are endorsing different products, let's just say Michael Phelps for the sake of it, wins his eighth gold medal and maybe endorsed for two, you know, he does a commercial for Nike or Right Guard, you know, and then all of a sudden we're in a, in a mall or online buying something and we're pulled to buy Nike sneakers over the other brands or Right Guard because uh, all of a sudden we have these unconscious um, sort of attachments to Michael Phelps with the sneakers. They, they represent, you know, strength, victory, patriotism even, even with Right Guard deodorant. So we can be primed in all different ways. We can be primed by having, you know, a big gossipy conversation about um, somebody new coming into school or work. And then we go to meet the person afterwards and, you know, already kind of primed to either like or not like them. We don't even necessarily know why. So our other brainy bridge, uh, before we move on to how this happens in everyday relationships We'll, we'll go back to Kahneman's system one uh, method of thinking, which is very automatic, very automatic, effortless, 
you know, the jumping to conclusions part of part of our thinking, which is where bias happens. And there are all sorts of different kinds of bias. And it's important to understand that bias, for the most part, at least how it begins and where it resides, is very, very unconscious. And one of the most common forms of bias is called confirmation bias. And this happens because the brain really, really likes patterns, likes to fill in gaps with information it already has. So confirmation bias, sort of by definition, is when we are looking to find in a conversation or a situation or whatever, what we already believe to be true. And then the second part of confirmation bias, which people often don't mention, is we're we're sort of looking for what we already believe to be true about a person, conversation, situation, or whatever, while sort of simultaneously ignoring any kind of incoming information that opposes what our beliefs are. And this second part is really important because incoming information, you know, that's maybe fact-checking what we already believe to be true, could potentially, you know, kind of unlock, you know, our thoughts and, and bring some new awareness to things. But with confirmation bias, we are very locked in with our own beliefs and looking to confirm what we already know to be true. I also just decided to mention one more brainy bridge, as, as, as we're calling them, because I would feel that we're not doing justice to a conversation on assumption making and bias if we didn't mention that this is also how prejudice happens. And this is because of a, a process in the brain that we actually need to survive and navigate our world, which is referred to as categorization. And this literally happens, you know, from the day we pop out of mom's womb, all wet and ready to go. And that may not be a visual that many of you enjoy, though this is a truth. So right away when they wrap us up and set us on, on her chest, right away we get that this is our warm, squishy thing. And she's different from all those other warm, squishy things. And this ability to differentiate um, and navigate through our world just improves with every day that that we grow and change. Baby, um, you know, toddler, all the way up through. So let's say a two-year-old, most two-year-olds, if you had, if they were working a puzzle on, let's say, farm animals, and you came and sat next to them, I'm thinking of, of those puzzles with the big wooden pieces with the little kind of peg to hold. And yours is on, you have, let's say, African animals. You've got like the Lion King crew, you know, Pumbaa and Timon. And if you went to try to put Rafiki in with the two-year-olds, um, you know, goats and pigs and horses, the two-year-old would right away say, no, 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 doesn't go here. So once again, we need to be able to categorize to, you know, make it through the world. And then if we fast forward to, let's say, a a career as a grown-up, a couple of careers that uh, very much depend on the ability to categorize are the brave souls working at airports and security, looking through, you know, 
x-rayed bags, you know, trying to find, you know, fit shapes into their, their schema for what might be dangerous. And another one might be a doctor kind of reading an x-ray. So this process of categorization that we need to survive and navigate our world, unfortunately, can really go a bad direction when we start to categorize people, you know, based on lots of things, right? Color of skin, religion, piercings, tattoos, behavior, sexual orientation, blah, 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 blah. And because bias is so unconscious, right, this happens very, very early when things are said to us, and it can be family members, friends, uh, media, whatever, and then are further reinforced the whole way along, which, of course, plays into our unconscious confirmation bias as grown-ups. And we may be walking down the street, see somebody who we perceive to be sketchy on, on, and then we cross over to the other side and don't even know why. And this is because these messages are coming from the vault. That's how I like to refer to the unconscious. We may not even know why we're treating somebody differently or why we feel nervous because of whatever difference they have going on. It's because of this, these messages that came from early on that are, have led us into a confirmation bias what we, all, what we believe to be true about um, a certain person or a group of people. And remember that we jump to conclusions about people, situations, because the brain is lazy. And this is a time saver. This is system one thought in, you know, totally in gear, wanting to get this decision over right now about this person, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, whether they're potentially dangerous or whatever, because it wants to have this thought process done right now, rather than, you know, kick into gear with system two, which is far more slowed down, wanting to gather the facts about this person or situation before coming to, uh, coming to a conclusion. And we jump to all sorts of conclusions, don't we? Making assumptions all over the place. Why we didn't get the job or the promotion. Why when they recently furloughed people, we were in the group that was furloughed versus the group that was uh, allowed to continue to work. Especially if we're in a romantic relationship, we can really believe that we have developed some fine-tuned mind-reading skills. Not only do we know how he feels or what she feels, but we also jump to the conclusion that they must know how I feel. They should know how I feel. You know, we could have been stewing in our mind, you know, the whole way home from work and walks the partner, and they should just know why I'm so pissed or hurt or why I'm not feeling listened to. They should just know. In fact, I had a student share something in class just this week in our positive psychology class. So uh, our students have, have read the four agreements. I was so proud of her. She's 19, she's a first year, so I'd say she's 18 or 19, and she's working at a grocery store on the front lines. And she said, some people have been kind. And she's also in a populated area. And she said, and she's had a whole lot of snarkies, as she called them, you know, just, you know, kind of 
blowing up over small things, you know, not having this, not having that, you know, little things. And they have, you know, been, you know, been nasty for lack of a better word to some of the, some of the people working at the grocery store. And again, I was so proud of my student because here, you know, many 30, 40, 50 year olds and beyond are not in this place. And here this young lady is 19. And when she shared um, just this week about the, the, for agreements reading, she said, you know, professor, she said, I took deep breaths, just like we've been doing in class. Not that it was easy. She said, and I thought of the second agreement of just don't take things personally. And she said, I just thought about, it doesn't give her a pass, you know, to be, you know, snarky at me. And at the same time, who knows what's going on in her life or even in just in her day. And I thought this was incredibly insightful on her part, especially given, you know, the current situation with the pandemic. And what we talked about earlier with, um, you know, the the fear energy in the air and how anybody who's had any kind of trauma is walking around re-injured right now from you know, a whole spectrum of, of ways and intensity. And the fact that this 19-year-old understood that, not even knowing, you know, what tripped this woman's cord, she was able to not make assumptions that it was about her, not to take it personally. And because of it, she was able to go on with her day kind of free of the drama. She let the woman take her own drama with her, and my student remained free from it. And, you know, there's certainly a rather huge connection between taking something personally and kind of moving to the second step, which is making an assumption, right? So as Miguel Ruiz says in the Four Agreements, he's when we take things personally, this is just like the ultimate self-importance, right? Because we're choosing to make whatever it is about us. And this then is, this then makes the assumption that that person gets what's in our heads or in our world. Miguel Ruiz says in his book that we have the tendency to make assumptions about everything. The problem with making assumptions is that we believe they are the truth. We could swear they are real. We make assumptions about what others are doing or thinking. We take it personally. Then we blame them and react by sending emotional poison with our word. That is why whenever we make assumptions, we're, make, we're asking for problems. We make an assumption, we, we misunderstand, we take it personally, and we end up creating a whole big drama for nothing. And this is so true on so many different levels, right? You know, we've been living in our heads, stewing in wherever we're stewing in, feeling really hurt, in walks the partner, we're assuming that they know we're hurt, should know we're hurt, but instead they're living in their head and clearly misreading, you know, the laser vision, the laser vision death rays we're sending across the room, which has us even more frustrated. Ruiz says that we literally dream things up in our imaginations because we don't understand something. We make an assumption about the meaning. And when the truth comes out, the bubble of our dream pops and we find out it was not at all what we thought it was. Now, how many times have we all had this happen? We may have wasted 
minutes, hours, or even days residing in some place, assuming that we knew, you know, why whatever happened, happened. Then, you know, the person comes up and said, oh, no, sorry, I didn't get back to you. Um, my power's out for two days, you know, whatever. And the whole time we were doing that, they weren't speaking to us or something. And of course, in today's world, nowhere is this more true than, than with, um, you know, technology, texting, emailing if we're old people, let's say seasoned people, it sounds nicer, and the whole social media thing. It, the, the assumption being is just endless. In fact, when we discuss this, this uh, in particular with my students, they often end up kind of chuckling at themselves and with each other when they share one story after another about how they were texting so-and-so. Um, they've been talking to this person, which is, you know, kind of millennial language for dating, but they don't say that now. So they're talking with this person maybe two weeks, three weeks, and starting to get close, and all of a sudden the person, you know, drops off for God forbid, four hours, right? And right away, we're interpreting this as they don't like me anymore. I really like this person. What did I do? What did I say? I must have done something wrong. Bah, 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 bah. I'm so sad now. I really saw us, you know, being a thing. And it can't be that the phone is dead. They're at the dentist. They left it in the car. None of those things could be true. It must be that they don't like me anymore. And of course, even if the person does answer via email or text and the phone isn't dead or whatever, we are still interpreting, you know, black typed letters, you know, with exclamation points, which may mean they're shouting. We can interpret that they're shouting. There's no way to tell if they are shouting or to what degree they're shouting because there are no facial cues or no, there's no tone. We can't possibly truly interpret that text as we could if it were in person. And even then, we still have everything we're talking about. So we really don't know unless we ask. Ruiz goes on to say that we make the assumption that everyone sees life the way we do. How true is that, huh? He says that we see, we assume that others think the way we think feel the way we feel, judge the way we judge. This is the biggest assumption that humans make. And this is why we have a fear of being ourselves around others, because we think everyone else will judge us and blame us as we do ourselves. So even before others have a chance to reject us, we've already rejected ourselves. This is the way the human mind works. Or, you know, just so I'm clear... I interpreted ba ba ba. Is this correct? So this is kind of where it comes into play about asking questions. It's so important to just ask for clarity. And for some reason, in our society, we've been so conditioned to not ask questions. I don't know if it seems rude or uh, there's a fear there or something. We just don't want to say, you know, ask, how are you feeling about this? Ruiz says that these assumptions are made so fast and unconsciously most of the time because we have agreements to communicate this way. We have agreed that it is not safe to ask questions. We have agreed 
that if people love us, they should know what we want or how we feel. How true is that, huh? When we believe something, we assume we are right about it to the point that we will destroy relationships in order to defend our position. Ruiz goes on to say that we also make assumptions about ourselves, and this creates a lot of inner conflict. We say, I think I'm able to do this. He says, you make this assumption, for instance, then you discover you aren't able to do it. You overestimate or underestimate yourself because you haven't taken the time to ask yourself questions and to answer them. Perhaps you need to gather more facts about a particular situation. Or maybe you need to stop lying to yourself about what you truly want. And this, of course, links us right back to the System 2 way of thinking, because this is where we really want to reside the high majority of of the time. We want to think like Sherlock Holmes. We want to slow it down, gather the facts, you know, and, and, all, and question ourselves and others before we make a decision or merely jump to a quick conclusion. And going along with this, Reese says that we also need to find our voice and to ask for what we want. Everybody has a right to tell you no or yes, but you always have the right to ask. Likewise, everybody has the right to ask you, and you have the right to say yes or no. And right off the bat, now I'm thinking about the autism spectrum and and how much I love them to begin with. And this is one of the, the main things I love about them. And, of course, disclaimer, because whenever we make a generalization, obviously, whether it's autism or ADHD or whatever, it doesn't mean that, you know, that this truth is for everyone. And autism or ADHD or whatever looks different on everyone. And at the same time, this very linear, logical thinking, very honest thinking, um, I think that, you know, the rest of us could really learn from this lovely Neurodiversity has so much to offer to the neurotypical population. So our oldest daughter is on the autism spectrum, on the high-functioning end, which she will correct me right away, and she will tell me that the autistic community chooses not to identify with the DSM-5's reframe. They would prefer to identify as either Aspies or Autistics, So these are the words I will use. And because uh, things need to make sense to autistics, they're not huge fans of small talk. Um, As this seems like a gigantic waste of time. And also, as this wiring uh, sort of brings with it, you know, a particular challenge with interpreting nonverbal cues and signals, facial expressions and such, which of course is two-thirds of how we communicate, um, they kind of have had to learn to ask questions. As there is often also a difficulty with any sort of abstraction, um, which includes sarcasm and getting jokes, this also leads this particularly brilliant group to 
ask more questions. You know, can you please explain this? Can you elaborate? Um, you know, help me interpret this. So just imagine what the neurotypical population can learn from this incredibly brilliant group of people if we kind of adopted, you know, this method of, you know, asking questions, please clarify, please explain. Imagine if we brought this into our relationships, how much easier things would be, how much less drama there would be. And never mind, you know, the less less pain and suffering if we just asked questions. Also, the Aspies in general, once again, tend to be very precise with their word choices, which also tend to bring about clarity um, for the person on the receiving end. By embracing this lovely neurodiversity, just think of what this could do for the world as far as good, clear communication. So winding up then, Ruiz says, with clear communication, all of your relationships will change, not only with your partner, but with everyone else. You won't need to make assumptions because everything becomes so clear. This is what I want. This is what you want. If we communicate in this way, our word becomes impeccable. If all humans could communicate in this way with impeccability of the word, there would be no wars, no violence, no misunderstandings. He says that all human problems are solved if we could just have good, clear communication. And on that lovely note, this is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.